Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome, listeners. It is an incredible wonder of technology and across the world joint podcast where we are podcasting for the Fitter Food Radio channel in London with Matt Whitmore and Karis Marston. How are you guys? We are awesome. How are you, Brad? And guess what? You guys are over here in America on the Primal Blueprint podcast in California. So why not? We'll have the show published on both channels. If you're a fan of uh, both of those excellent podcasts, hey, it's the same exact show. So don't get your hopes up. But um, we are so excited to catch up because it's been a while. You guys came over for a couple wonderful PrimalCon events in years past, and you've been very busy over there, um, most particularly writing an awesome, awesome second book called Fitter Food, Second Helping, right? That's correct. So your first book, Fitter Food, you guys self-published it. It was a wonderful story. You it, Didn't you move back home with mom and save all your pennies and then run a press run and cross your fingers and then... It went crazy in England, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And that's when we met was you guys said, hey, uh, we had this little, we're a little mom and pop shop, literally, and uh, we're selling these things out of our garage. What about coming over to America? And we um, renamed the book Paleo Primer for marketing purposes and getting it in Costco and getting people to start on the paleo scene. And it's done extremely well over the last two years. You guys are um, literally categorized as bestsellers in America. And so now... um, (laughs) Although the book's not ready to launch in America yet, um, Fitter Food Second Helping is uh, available in UK, correct? Absolutely. It is. And we're back in the uh, bedroom of mom and dad (laughs) selling books out the garage again. It's it's like deja vu right now. (laughs) Uh, So tell me about that a little. I mean, it's you're going from start to finish with a concept. Um, You're not with this, you know, giant publishing house with a creative team telling you what to write about. You guys are very authentic and, and doing everything from A to Z, correct? Yeah, that, that's absolutely it, buddy. Um, you know, it's it, it kind of, I think a lot of people actually assume that, that the book is published because I think people just automatically believe that because there's an actual book there with pages on that you can turn. <laughs> not an e-book. Yeah. That's not an e-book or whatever, you know, that, that, that you did get it published and I think sometimes, you know, people, it's quite refreshing for people to know that, you know, we invested every penny ourselves, you know, all of our time, all of our effort, like the marketing, the pictures, the recipes, the content, the research, everything is 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 us, you know, which is really quite a proud feeling. It's a real sense of achievement, knowing that you're you're responsible for all of it, so to speak. But equally, it's quite daunting at the same time. Well, especially, I mean, you're careers are in health and fitness professional and all of a sudden you've had to become uh, experts in the publishing world <laughs> exactly it's a bit, a bit of a change one of the things we had to do we were quite keen to have um a photo for every recipe and we got told by a lot of publishing companies that's something that you'll never have in a published book really because it's so expensive to get photographers in 
So that's why we started doing everything ourselves. So just using an iPhone, basically taking the pictures. Which you can um, probably tell. From yeah, some yeah of the pictures. you can tell from some. <laughs> there's like a dog in the background yeah. licking a plate or <laughs> something. Most of them. <laughs> or there's like a reflection of me in the spoon and I'm like not wearing any clothes and you're like oops <laughs> didn't spot that before it went to print well that was on purpose uh, <laughs> for the, yeah um, so tell me about the second book and where it picks up I mean for those of you unfamiliar with the first book Paleo Primer in the US and um, Fitter Food in the UK um, I, we think uh, that it's it's done the very best job of possibly any book to get someone who's new to the scene, acquainted in a very uh, gentle and meaningful and memorable way with your funny cartoons about muffin tops and all this kind of uh, opening dialogue that uh, sets the stage for the primal paleo evolutionary health message and then the second half of the book being these great creative recipes that are easy to make. That's my favorite part. There's not 27 ingredients. It's pretty, pretty easy to throw the stuff together quickly. And um, So that's the first book. And then you were compelled to um, not rest on your laurels and get going again. So what's in the second book? Um, well, again, uh, recipes follow a really similar principle. So minimal ingredients, easy to make. You know, we're not chefs. We are basically uh, personal training and nutrition is our background and we have very little time. So, um, But also we felt we got lots and lots of emails from people saying they loved um, the concept and they completely got it. But they wanted a bit more help personalizing uh, fitter food or, or, or paleo to their to their needs so um that could be their training needs or in terms of how many carbohydrates they should be eating we, we've offered guidance in the book but they just wanted a little bit more um and we're not we're not great fans of, of logging and tracking using software and weighing food and making it really complicated so again we thought well visuals are the best way to guide people so how much protein is in an egg for example is just in a really simple table um, and the same for fats and, and carbohydrates. We just did it with a really simple tables to follow, didn't we? And even things like should you add dairy in and, and what dairy would be probably the, the least likely to cause you any digestive problems at first. We decided to do it as a scale because we just thought, you know, pictures are so much easier and so much more entertaining, really, aren't they? Less, less boring to look at. Yeah, yeah. So loads of words. Break up the heavy text, but also give people a sense of how to personalize it. And also, because we evolve a little bit, don't we, over time. And so there are things where, as the science has changed a little bit, we've said, okay, well, you know, maybe it's not so bad to have a few legumes if you want to for fiber or resistant starch, whatever it may be. So again, we've just offered the latest research and said, you know, experiment really. That's all you can do and just see what, what your body tells you. What, how does it respond to the changes that you make? Interesting. Uh, the same for us, you know, the Primal Blueprint uh, was released, uh, written in 2008 and um, released in 2009. And that's a long time ago for a burgeoning industry and scientific progress in the evolutionary health scene. So yeah. um, we're going through that and looking at um, all, the, all the research that Mark's done and the personal experimentation on things like alcohol and changing, changing his take on that to be a little bit more of a, uh, a downer or a realist rather than giving that, you know, tacit approval to drink red wine because it's got antioxidants. You know, it's a much deeper story than that. And then the resistant starch thing, which was nowhere to be found in um, 2008, 2009, there was nothing talking about it. And now it's a, um, you know, a big part of healthy eating and choosing the right foods. Yeah, definitely. We, we had to sort of go back and say, you know, white potatoes, you know, probably as nutritious as sweet potatoes. That was another change we added in, wasn't it? Um, 
yeah, and we we've just been watching the science, and as it changes, we've just just basically just revised our approach. And but again, it's it's also the point we want to make is it is still really individual, and some of these foods can be, you know, well, we, you've heard the same one man's food is another man's poison. So you've just got to have that degree of experimentation. And the big message we give is stop comparing yourself and sort of falling for the fads that are out there and this idea that there is one solution and one size fits all because you know i don't know i'm sure it's in in over states but in the uk there's just a new diet every every single month and it gets in all the headlines and the books come out and everyone's doing it and social media facebook is full of it and you always know because usually it's your best mate that starts to do it who never wants to listen to you (laughs) but will listen to the latest diet pretty much (laughs) whatever that is or my mum sometimes. Your mum's terrible. <laughs> she is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to her if she's listening. Uh, let me ask you a lengthy question then, because uh, unlike a lot of uh, authors or health experts, you guys are actually waking up every day and going hands-on with real people and clients at Fitter London. So when you talk about that individuality, um, let's get more in-depth about uh, what you've actually seen uh, on the street with in terms of what works for one person doesn't work for another, and maybe particularly talk about the topic of carbon take because we keep hearing um, there's, there's a little bit of debate back and forth and, um, yeah, all that. I would say that the first thing that everybody does is um, assume that the recommendations that we're making, because we say things like drop out the pasta, the bread, is that we're saying go ultra-low carb. Um, and we definitely did this ourselves initially um, and then gradually started to revise it when we were like, OK, this doesn't feel too great. Um, you know, we're all for taking carbs down a little bit and obviously not eating the processed refined types. But um, you've kind of got to find your tolerance. That, uh, and we talk about the symptoms to all the people we work with. They've perhaps gone too low carb. Um, but that, I would say, is the first thing that we have to help people with. And again, that's why we came up with diagrams and said, look at your body composition um, generally, if you've got a lot of weight to lose, you're probably going to have to go in the very sort of low carb bracket. We love your um, the graph that you guys have, which is in the uh, the latest book that you have again. Um, carb the curve. carb curve. <laughs> I've had my coffee. Um, and yeah, so that was the first thing. Also, in terms of digestive health, we're as uh, you and Mark are, we're really big on that and just trying to get people to identify if they might have something like a, a lactose intolerance issue. So actually, the dairy isn't going to be on the plate for them. Um, so we took, we coached people through that. One thing that's pretty easy is we, the first thing we do is get people to hit a decent protein goal, don't we? Uh, we're not as massive as the fitness industry is at going. We've seen recommendations of three to four grams of protein per kilo of body weight, which um, you guys work in pounds, I think, don't you? So Yeah, that would still be up over one and um, Primal Blueprint's saying 0.7 to 1.0 gram per pound. So that would be um, 2.2 would be the high Heist. or the most that we say anyone needs, even an athletic person. So yeah, yeah three and four is, um, that's a lot. And um, as we know, when you consume too much protein, um, the body does a good job converting that into glucose. So we call, when, when you have the so-called high protein diet, you might as well call it a high sugar diet because that's what's going on with the protein after you obtain your basic needs. Absolutely. Well, that, that was a common mistake that we found, didn't we? That yeah. people were like, "Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm ketogenic. I'm ketogenic," and we're like, "Well, you're not because you're consuming <laughs> too much protein." Fair enough. You're not eating any carbs, but your protein is through the roof, so you won't be in proper ketosis because you know you, your body's converting that, as you say, into glucose. So 
if you really want to be in ketosis, get the protein down a bit and take the fats up even more. And that's a hard one because people still have in the back of their mind, they want to lose weight. Yeah. And okay, I'll cut carbs to lose weight. And uh, I should cut fat too because I don't want to get fat, you know. And so it's a, <laughs> it's a big thing to embrace to go, um, you know, emphasizing the fat as your main source of nutrition, limiting those carbs strictly, especially if you're trying to drop fat and then not going overboard with the protein. Yeah, definitely. And, and I suppose the other thing was um, we, we found there was this idea that, well, if it's on the fit of food, in the fit of food pantry, then surely I can just eat endless amounts of it. And again, we had to go back and say there's, there's obviously we're not big fans of sort of controlled calorie counting, but it's still relevant in the sense of you can't, there's no free food. Um, and also just making things too hyper palatable. So we had to sort of go back and say, you can't live on, we've put these, we have cheats of champions, as we called them in the first book, and you know, like the occasional cake made out of ground almonds, or it's almond flour, isn't it over there that you guys, you, you guys call it, but mm. there's still a limit to how much of these foods, yeah. they're not free foods that you can just eat and eat and eat and still expect to see changes in body composition, you're still making hormonal changes by making your foods really delicious and yummy and then overriding all of your satiation mechanisms basically. Oh, <laughs> interesting. So you're saying if you if you have something that's whatever so uh, rich or sweet, rich, delicious, um, that's going to be something that you'll be inclined to overeat because uh, it's going to override your satiety mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, what we what we try and coach people on is to say. Um, if if people say to us, I've got an absolutely insatiable appetite and, and I just never know when I'm full and I can, you know, can't stop eating. One of the first things we do is change the source of their macronutrients. But I've been looking at the sort of food reward studies that have been going on with, with obese individuals where they're saying to bring your food sense of food reward that you get from a meal down a bit. And it, sometimes on some of our programs, it's not very popular because I, I basically say it's things like a lot of steamed fish for a week. And it's just for them to suddenly, most of them start to become aware of their natural appetite signaling again, don't they? Yeah. I'm, I'm hugely unpopular for it because no one eats to, want, no one really wants steamed fish for a week. But again, these are just little tricks that we use with people. And then we say, now you can start to play around with it. You don't need to eat this sort of food all the time, but um, decrease the food reward, you'll find your appetite kicks in and then you're able to sort of start to enjoy food a bit, little bit more naturally. Um, and fasting also, we think, has that effect. So, um, I mean, it, it kind of it almost sounds horrific in a way. Like, you know, you did, we don't want people thinking that we're trying to say, oh, make food less enjoyable, <laughs> you know, because it's really important that you do obviously enjoy the food that you eat. But, um, you know, the example we often give is like like white potato, for example, um, like we love potato, but there's a big difference between if, you know, if you had a, you know, a bowl of potato, just plain potato, nothing added to it, no salt, no seasoning, nothing. You know, there's only so much you could eat before you're probably a bit bored and a bit over it. Whereas melt some butter over it, whack some salt and pepper in there, maybe some herbs. And all of a sudden it's hyper palatable and you could probably consume twice the amount that you would have done had that, you know, the butter and the seasoning not been present. So it's not about making food bad tasting just like kind of like less less tasty ever so slightly just till you get things in check but just to add the recipes in the book aren't like boiled potatoes yeah. and steamed <laughs> right, <juice>. right, right. <laughs> yeah just an fyi yeah <laughs> um so back to that uh main issue of desiring to lose excess body fat is it always going to be the default answer that um the carb restriction um will make it happen or is there any kind of out or rationalization for someone to 
Um, I don't know. I, 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 I assume some people have to progress at a slower rate. A lot of times they say men can you know, go ketogenic right away and get a six-pack in a month, whereas females might mess with their hormones, their thyroid, if they um, too abruptly restrict the carbs. Well, I think for, for us, I mean, it, it totally depends on the individual, as you, as you mentioned, um, because initially we don't even address carbs and fats. Like if someone's just come to us who's completely new to this, you know, the first thing we want to do is just change where their calories come from um, in terms of food quality. So, you know, replacing calorie-dense food for nutrient-dense foods. So less about high-carb, low-carb, low-fat, high-fat, whatever. Um, we just want them to make that transition first of all and step away from the processed goods. And start cooking. Exactly, <laughs> and get in, the, get in the kitchen and start cooking and planning their meals and getting a little bit savvy there. Because for most, especially like, you know, those that are new to it, those that have got a substantial amount of weight to lose, you know, that's enough initially to get the ball rolling. They see a drop in body fat. They see energy levels go up. You know, they, they, they start to see and feel the difference. So of course, they then want to take it up a gear. And just as people's body composition goes down, you know, their energy goes up and they, they get a bit more of a passion for training, you know, be it in the gym or outside, we can then start adapting things a little bit more and, you know, maybe adding carbs more towards the post-workout window, elevating fats and dropping carbs down on rest days, for example. But initially for us, it's just all about the quality of the food and, and making that change. Wow, what a great start. And, <laughs> and, you know, getting that energy because you're getting your nutrition and um, then you can start thinking about exercising more. And how important do you guys feel that exercise routine is and especially the intensity when you're talking about that that big picture of making progress from walking into the gym on day one, looking at how many extra stone you're carrying, <laughs> and then wanting to, you know, continue to progress smoothly with all the all the all the cylinders firing. Well, it's funny because we started out in the fitness industry. I always joke that I I used to think fitness was the an the answer to everything. Like you know, you haven't you wake up in a grumpy mood, go for a run, you're going to feel amazing, and you want to lose body fat, like, train, train, train so much, train twice a day if you can. Um, and obviously, as we, 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 we went through experiences ourselves, which taught us that wasn't the case, you know, you have injuries and, and other things, but, um, and then went to study nutrition. And I suddenly realized, actually, it's such a, it's an essential part of the picture, but it's a much smaller part than I ever really realized. And when I started doing, um, so I've done some women only programs online. And the first thing I did is make them have a couple of weeks off exercise and all they could do um, my recommendation was just walk every single day because the changes that were going to be taking place like getting used to being in the kitchen um, just going back to what you mentioned about carbohydrates I never take the women too low so I always insisted that everyone has carbohydrates with their evening meal um, and when I say I mean um, like starch based so some potatoes or some some white rice or, or legumes maybe and um, the next phase, then I started to get them doing some glucose testing to see what their carb tolerance was as an individual. Um, but the women, I never used to make them have this break. And you'd be surprised how many of them found it the hardest suggestion that I made, didn't they? They were at, absolutely at up first, in arms yeah. about it because they had relied on exercise to feel good about themselves and to control their body composition. And I suppose they thought that gave them more freedom with their nutrition. Whereas what I said is we're going to focus on nutrition, getting to bed <laughs> early, um, stop spending most of your day stressing and get out for some nice long walks and and cook your own food um, and really have a think about whether you, how much you enjoy the training that you were doing. Um, and most of them, when they saw that their, their body composition improved with that, 
they were able to go back in. But what I then said was just add in two sessions, first of all, and see how you feel. And, and some, you know, want to take it back to four or five. And if that was their, that's their, you know, their lifestyle, and they enjoy it. A lot of people have a, a social element to exercise. So it's really important for them. But and a lot of what we learned from you and Mark was start to look at alternative forms. So play, it could be that you go and join a sports team, or you, um, you know, head to the park with your dog and a frisbee, it doesn't always have to be the gym, the gym, the gym, which Again, because of, I think social media drives it, there's so much comparison of what you should be doing. You should be doing this CrossFit workout and you should be lifting this heavy weight. And, you know, and I think people are losing the ability to sort of read their own body and, and remember what they like, you know, as an individual. Wow. Yeah. I mean, um, you don't have to be creative anymore because there's so much programming and so many people vying for your um, gym dollar or your training dollar and what have you. And that's an interesting point that maybe we're getting away from um, something that we really prefer, you know, like, like going to the park with the dog is you're allowed to make that one of your workouts. You don't have to be in the gym um, day after day after day, because I feel like in a lot of cases, if you're in that setting, even though it's a friendly, nurturing, warm, friendly trainers and all that, it's still competitive when there's other people around doing a group workout or even just, uh, you know, being there and going through the circuit with the weights, you're kind of... Um, you know, you're in a public setting with other people around um, looking at how many plates you just plugged in or whatever, and <laughs> you can kind of get carried away with the the energy of the place and um, get into, um, you know, a chronic pattern. Yeah. But it's almost like uh, it's, it's the same, you know, training and nutrition. You know, nutrition will think that in order for it to be healthy and for you to get results, it needs to be bland and boring and consist of primarily chicken and salad. And same with training, people that think it needs to be absolutely grueling, you feel like you're about to die in order for it to to get results, you know, from a body composition perspective, when in fact, obviously, quite the opposite is true. You know, as we all know, healthy, great tasting, nutrient dense food can be very, very tasty and very easy to prepare. And as you say, the best type, we always say the best type of training to do to get the results you want is the type of training routine that you can stick to, which obviously should involve something you enjoy. So you guys are dealing with a fair number of endurance athletes, British-style endurance athletes. <laughs> How is the whole uh, concept of paleo-style eating for endurance playing out over there uh, on the other side of the pond? Is, are, are people embracing it? Is it a new mysterious thing? Are you seeing people that are touting good results? Well, then. The only person, so we, I'd seen uh, Barry Murray speak, who I don't know if you've, he's a runner um, and he's actually um, a ketogenic runner and he's really trying to promote the conversion of basically sort of being carb fueled to being fat adapted. Um, and I really like, he's actually trying to get as many athletes as he can on board with it. And he, he actually does it very slowly, very step by step. So slowly tapering their carbs down and taking their fats up. And um, he's got some great programs um, where he's doing that. But other than him, I haven't heard anything of you. No. It's it's really not, um, you know, that sort of, that approach isn't, it's not, I don't think it's quite reached here. And it's interesting because I got an email today from someone who wants to run the London Marathon. <laughs> um, and again, has probably a body composition goal as well and not no experience of running a marathon. And it's kind of like the first thing I did was send them a picture of basically yours and Mark's latest book because I was like, you need to read this. Because this is the approach that I would definitely have recommended someone, which is you know what you you guys have done in your latest book, and it's fantastic. And I have to say, when I read it, I thought, God, did I get it wrong for so many years <laughs> reading the book? Didn't you think? 
Oh, yeah, no, it's, um, it really does raise some really good points. But for me, I mean, the, the book and something that we've always said, I mean, this, I think, applies a, m- mostly to people that are looking to do marathons or, or further, is, you know, you know, because uh, the London Marathon's in April, like towards the end of April. Funnily enough, most people want to start preparing for a marathon. Bearing in mind, a lot of the time, these people have never even run five miles, let alone 26 miles. And all of a sudden, they think that they can just prepare for it from January. They're like, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to run a London <laughs> marathon. And they give themselves like a, f- a few months to prepare for it. And we're like, my God, you know, not only do you need much more than that to adapt from a, you know, from a training perspective, but even like your nutrition and your body composition and everything else, you know, you're not going to get in, in into marathon shape in three, four months. You know, it's, it's, it's impossible. Not if you want to do it the safe way and potentially do another one. And the first step, actually, that they say following the I'm going to do a marathon is um, if they have been following a paleo diet is so I'm going to really rank up the carbs and and probably ditch the paleo until I've done the marathon and then take it up again afterwards. And that's when you really do sort of like slap your forehead and go, what? (laughs) And and so it's um, I suppose we should mention we got a copy of your book, Primal Endurance, and uh, we've both been reading through it saying this is brilliant. So for the first time to have someone explain how you could actually incorporate the principles into some endurance training, but also how to do endurance training properly as well. It's incredible. I mean, well, to be fair, though, I mean, it's worth buying primary endurance just to look at the pictures of Mark and Brad, <laughs> you know, 30 years. Old ago. school. <laughs> yeah, wearing the Speedo. Nowadays, oh my gosh, they're in their, their sleek body suits and they're looking at this going, what's this clown doing? But I mean, time time passes on, man. You look great in a crop top, Brad, I must admit. <laughs> a crop top. That, so that's what they call it, huh? What do you call it? The little half? A singlet, racing singlet. Singlet. Oh, is that what they called? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, but thank you for your interest and um, those comments. It's uh, when, when you're talking about a, ca- a recreational marathoner and uh, you know exercising at that really slow pace. Uh, or you know, n- not to um, judge their performance. I'm saying at a, a really uh, low percentage of maximum heart rate. Clearly, the fat adapted training you know, is, is no problem to, to fuel that type of effort on fats. Now, when you're looking at people in the gym and doing that high-intensity stuff and the crazy stuff that you made me do in Tulum, Matt, where we were doing the push-ups, uh, the partner push-ups. Oh, guys, this is fun. Matt and I were partners, and the one partner waits in the plank position, and the other partner's doing the requisite number of push-ups, and they have to wait there until the guy's done. And I, I bailed on you, man. I, I tried as hard as I could. I got up to, I think we were doing countdown, like 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Then, yeah. you know, pretty soon when it came time to do four, um, you know, it took me a minute and 27 seconds instead of eight seconds. And poor Matt was stuck there, <laughs> stuck there in the plank position, cheering me on still with all that enthusiasm. But, oh, that was a lot of fun. But anyway, it was a high-intensity session. And there's a lot of talk where people are wondering, whether this, um, you know, low adherence to a low carb paleo style eating plan, and then having these aspirations of doing uh, high explosive and high power uh, exercise and performance will be effective. Yeah, I mean, that's one one thing that we've sort of tried to get people to do is understand the difference between, um, you know, sort of an anaerobic or really intense session where you, you may need to refuel with carbohydrates afterwards, or if it's more of a, you know, a walk in the park or some low level cardio. And I think we think there's quite a lot of confusion about that over here. And even when I was reading the book, I thought I wish I'd had this 10 years ago because I definitely ran, 
I would say like a, as a just a recreational runner, but I always ran as hard and as fast as I, I could most days, which you, was you, five you, or six times a you week. You just always ran. Yeah, yeah. But, but also... <laughs> she, she'd run to our dinner dates. <laughs> she'd have her dress in a backpack and then turn <laughs> and get changed. She wouldn't really. I'm, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> But I did always need carbs. Like, I, like literally, couldn't you could never feed me enough carbs because I was always trying to train really hard every single day. And um, I think, although the book is written, there are so many people doing Ironman and um, triathlons that would really benefit from starting with this book before they even enter the race. But even just recreational um, athletes would really benefit from from actually reading through it and trying to understand how energy systems work in the body and and what fuel you could use for what what um, type of training you're doing. And also, you know, like giving some people an idea of scales of progression rather than just assuming that they can achieve X amount in four weeks' time and actually phasing their training a little bit, focusing on one thing at a time, and then progressing each month or each, every couple of months and. And that's what I like about the book is that it's just a real simplified approach, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, especially when it comes to the all the nonsense and the blabber about different heart rate training zones. Yeah. And not to say there's there's a lot of science and validity behind these and what's your anaerobic threshold and your sub-threshold and your zone three and zone four. And it's like, if you're an Olympic athlete and you're trying to beat the Brownlee brothers, good luck, because you won't. They're the best, uh, most highest-performing triathletes I've ever seen at Olympic distance. But, um, you know, the highest level of elite competitor might want to bother with a little of that. Um, but, you know, the, the rest of the field and the amateur participant, it's as simple as distinguishing between an aerobic workout and one that drifts above a predominantly aerobic workout and becomes a slightly anaerobic workout. So we use that 180 minus your age figure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, old guy like me, I'm 51. <laughs> uh, my maximum aerobic heart rate is 129 starting today. Sorry about that. I got to set my watch again. Oh, yeah. Um, Perfect. But, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> what, it, what the practical application of this aerobic training uh, emphasis is, is that you're going really, really slow. So... When you were jogging along, Karis, and, and, and a, a fit athletic person and having a comfortable run, not, not pushing yourself, um, it's likely uh, that even then you were exceeding that maximum aerobic heart rate as evidenced by your craving for carbohydrates because when you drift above aerobic, you start burning more glucose than fat. Yeah, and that's what I was saying to Matt. I, I wish I'd had this guidance and been able to do. So you in the book talk about a maximum aerobic function test where you basically do your six laps, uh, measure your heart rate, and the idea is you keep repeating that test and the heart rate stays the same. It should be your, your maximum heart rate zone for aerobic training, which mine would be 145, Brad. <laughs> oh, you guys are so young and <laughs> enthusiastic, and that's why you're cranking out so many books. Keep going. <laughs> You'll get tired when you're 50, I promise. <laughs> but I love that idea of doing the test and being able to get the idea would be your times would get quicker, but your heart rate would stay the same, wouldn't it? That's is that something that is it? Do you do that on a regular basis? Um, yeah, thanks for asking that question. That's really important, especially for people um, like Matt said. You know, you're you're going for a goal in a few months' time, and how are you going to track your progress? So, this maximum aerobic function test is to test your efficiency 
at aerobic heart rates. So it's the complete opposite of doing, let's say, a time trial where you're going to go out to the track that day and run as fast as you can and, and break, your, break your back to, to, to beat your time from last time. And, you know, that's called a race, and that's fine. When it's time to race, you race. But to determine your progress in training and to identify the times when um, you're possibly in a chronic pattern and not progressing, overtraining, burnt out, exhausted, you regularly perform this uh, low-intensity test. So it's a very comfortable, uh, you know, easy effort where you're going on the same exact course every single time for the same distance. So the running track, simple example, you go out there and you run eight laps on the track and you try to peg your heart rate at that 145 number in your case. So obviously you're going to be running along, it's going to go to 147, you slow down, it's going to go to 143, it's going to bop around, but you try to average 145. So again, it's a very, very comfortable pace for everyone. The max aerobic number is going to feel uh, you know, much lower than prob- probably the normal training pace you're accustomed to where you feel a bit of effort. It's just a very aerobic, easy to talk, easy to breathe through your nose only as one of the tests. But again, you need that heart rate monitor to get the accurate feedback. And then when you finish the eight laps, you record your time. And over the duration of your training, if you're doing it properly, um, you will see, uh, in many cases, a dramatic improvement in your aerobic efficiency evidenced by a faster time over that eight laps. And that's the sign that the aerobic base building is working, even though you're just trotting along and wondering, how is this going to apply to my peak competitive performance when I'm racing a 5K or a 10K or whatever. And the answer is that, you know, the building the aerobic system becomes stronger and stronger, gives you a, a bigger, a, a higher platform from which to launch your competitive efforts from. Now, I can just see, like, if you had tried to explain this to me when I was a big keen runner, I would have really struggled with it as a concept. Because like you just said, like the psyche of people that love to compete in these big races and, and um, triathlons is faster, harder, um, and, you know, sort of getting heart rate up high and, and you know, just basically sort of it, go, it goes against everything. But it makes so much more sense when you look at it, the way that you've explained everything in the book. It, I was just it was a real revelation to me. And I thought, I, as I said, I wish I'd had this 10 years ago. I think I wouldn't have maybe run into the injuries and other health issues that I did as a result of thinking that it's just always about pushing yourself. And <laughs> um, and also, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, but I was with the recommendation. You have a, a periodization plan where you suggest people work in sort of the aerobic zone for eight weeks. So, would that just be doing something like that test and basically other low-level cardio at that time, or would they complement this with any um, interval training or, or weight training alongside it? Yeah. So the the most important way to you know set yourself up for success, let's say in a competitive season, is to devote a period of time to strictly aerobic training. So no anaerobic stimulation. And it's a minimum of eight weeks. And in most cases, the average endurance athlete will benefit um, from extending that time till their aerobic efficiency gets to a respectable level. Because a lot of people will strap on that heart rate. They'll be fit people. I mean, there's a story of Mark Allen in the book, Mike Pig, where they first started embracing this uh, Phil Maffetone is the pioneer of aerobic base building and, and promoting and emphasizing this for decades with his athletes. And they strapped on the watch. Here's the number one guy in the world heading out to the local running track and running seven minute, 41 second miles. I think Mark Allen's first test was, and he's embarrassed, you know, he's, he's so slow, even though he can run, you know, 
a 30-minute 10K off the bike and, and be an extraordinary high-performing athlete in competitive setting, his aerobic system was deficient. And like you said, that leads to injuries, illness, burnout, and lack of progress because you're, you're you know, anaerobically excessive, which is high-stress training, and you can make a certain amount of progress and get to a certain level, and then you're going to struggle and suffer and break down and go backwards. So slowing down to eventually go faster and be more consistent and have a longer duration of you know, competitive success, that's what this is all about. So you take that first period of time and you know, there's a little bit of difference of opinion here, but I'm going to come out strongly and say, just forget all the intense workouts for at least that two-month period. So don't even do, um, you know, a 30-minute strength circuit once a week. Even though it's good for you and it's good for your muscles and it's great training and the squats and the deadlifts and all that stuff is fun, they will have a time and a place later when you can introduce that intense training. And during those periods of time, that periodization schedule, you're going to do drastically reduced training volume. So you're going to slow, you know, back off on those longer duration aerobic workouts and go to the gym and hit it hard and do your class and then rest the next day or, you know, jog for 20 minutes instead of an hour and come back and do a sprint workout on the same week and sort of package the high intensity training into a distinct time period. And this is something that, oh, I have to say, you know, it's egregiously abused by the average endurance athlete out there who somehow, some way has been convinced that they need to do everything every week. So Sunday's their long run and they put in some real distance and then Tuesday they go and hit the intervals hard on the hills and then Thursday is their strength training day in the gym where they're doing a circuit of weights and um, what happens is you become mediocre in everything because you're trying to accomplish not only too much overall work but also um, train disparate energy systems throughout the year in many cases uh, you know, on a regular basis. And you, you'll, you'll make much, much more progress if you segment you know, your goals in terms of uh, dedicating that period to aerobic base. So no intervals, nothing fast, um, keeping your heart rate under your, your 145 or 130 or whatever it is on every minute of every workout. And I can't emphasize how strongly that you have to be strict here because that competitive mindset and that endurance athlete rationalizing and saying, well, this, this is a pretty steep hill, so I'm going to let my heart rate beep up for a few minutes, and then I'm going to go back to the slow pace. And even when you introduce a tiny bit of anaerobic stimulation into, let's say, a long-duration aerobic workout, an hour-length run or a two-hour bike ride, um, your system is going to kick into accelerated glucose burning, and you're going to get a stimulation of stress hormones in the bloodstream that's difficult to recalibrate or reset back to comfortable, moderately stressful workout instead of, um, you know, a little bit intense and a little bit too stressful and a little bit too much glucose burning. So how would you suggest someone who is, is um, so like an, a, a triathlete competitor or Ironman competitor who is at the moment doing, as you just said, everything, um, so a bit of a jack of all sort of training program with all the interval training and resistance training and fueling it using carbohydrates, how would you suggest they switch in terms of its questions really would they just suddenly stop everything and go to this aerobic base for for eight weeks maybe more and then the nutrition as well would they just drop the carbs or do you have like a plan for tapering people down uh, up on the fats and down on the carbs good question i would f probably first suggest they um, get into golf or um, stand up paddling or a different sport and then see what they say to that 
Uh, if, <laughs> you're describing this this, this freaky athlete who's doing way too much and stubborn and all that. No, so we're gonna we're gonna have a first we're gonna have a little talk about hey, what are you all about? And um, that reminds me of a question I want to ask you guys about the psyche and how important that is and that desire to to push oneself too hard. But before uh, I ask that, I'll I'll answer the question and say uh, what would you guys do if that was your client in the gym? Go on, Matt. Go on. You, you got the ball rolling. <laughs> well, so okay. Um, I would probably, I would use a tapered approach where I start to, as Matt said, change the source of their carbs and then gradually start to bring carbohydrates down and take fats up. Um, but I do it in increments. So um, I don't know, like maybe 20, 30 grams of carbs coming down each week. So I wouldn't drastically drop them um, because they're going to feel pretty horrendous when their body's going. Where's the sugar? Um, Training-wise, I would just probably, I think I would get them doing this aerobic base straight away because that's instantly going to, you know, sort of change their energy needs. So hopefully they would feel better. When I get people just walking for a couple of weeks, they're already able to make better changes with their nutrition because they're not sort of, as you said, going into that that high-intense stress mode and then wanting sugar all the time. So I have more success implementing the changes. But just as you said, there'd have to be a really long conversation because I think I'd be averaging about four emails a day about how they were not happy with the situation and not comfortable with the lack of exercise and probably the lack of sugar and carbohydrates, although they wouldn't phrase it like that necessarily. It'd be, I'm not happy with the changes in my nutrition. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a tough transition because um, the first and foremost thing to do for, for an athlete is to slow the F down <laughs> and um, you're not going to succeed um, if you're in that chronic pattern. And someone, some expert on a podcast or in a in a studio says, "Yeah, you need to cut your carbs back. You need to quit eating all those gels and those energy bars all day and those sweetened drinks." Um, and you know, if you're locked into that um, carbohydrate dependency pattern and chronic training pattern, you're going to need those carbs, or you're going to pass out on your way to the subway. So we we can't fool around and say, "Hey, it's 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 a great thing to do. Try it tomorrow." Um, it's, it's a very serious matter to recalibrate away from that carbohydrate dependency and it takes a lot of discipline. So, um, and Mark and I thought about this, debated it, argued it for a while when we were designing the book to say, you know, Hey, we got to talk about diet right out of the gate. This is the big one. This is where you're going to get your weight loss benefits and all that. Um, but we ended up presenting the slow the F down chapter first, because if you got to set yourself up for success by, you know, dialing back those high glycolytic workout or even those moderate glycolytic workout where you're asking yourself to burn glucose because you're going too quickly. Because when you are moderating the stress of your training program, then you have a potential to succeed with dietary transition and cutting those carbs back. But until you moderate the stress of your training program, and I will probably argue your life as well, if you're not sleeping enough or you're just going, 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 you're going to be a carb machine because your brain's going to get drained of glucose and you're going to have a uh, you know dysregulation of appetite hormones and things that trigger you to consume sugar and more sugar. And it's just going to be a tailspin until you kind of um, you know get that exercise stress under control primarily yeah like we often say with with our clients who physically could not train where the ability to go out there and train hard and frequently was no longer within your control you know does that mean it's the end of the world no because of course you can control body composition and your health through nutrition 
and we try and get people to look at it their training from a different perspective in a way that if anything training is the added bonus you know it shouldn't be the other way around that good nutrition is the added bonus good nutrition should be every day um you know most of the time anyway um then start getting them to kind of change their approach to training rather than looking at it as all guns blazing, 110% all day, every day, if you know what I mean. Oh, that's a great point. Um, and I'm uh, back to that question about the psyche. Um, I speculate that the penchant for chronic training patterns is that back of your mind saying, my body composition is dependent upon me completing this workout or me getting to the gym five times a week or whatever. And it seems like um, you guys are doing a good job talking people out of that and getting them to relax a bit and focus more on the diet. That's that's 100% our approach. Like for us, like nutrition always comes first. And, you know, bear in mind, you know, you're talking to two people that love training. You know, I love training. I enjoy my training. I love lifting weights, playing sport, whatever it may be. But I kind of learned the hard way that intense training does not and should not come first. Not if you kind of want a long, healthy relationship with the gym or, or whatever training methods that you choose. And um, I think that it's important as well. Sometimes we work with people who have been training their ass off for, for say, nine, 12 months. And they're like, I'm still not getting the results that I wanted, you know, and I'm training every single day and I'm pounding the pavement for this many miles a week. And I'm like, well, why is it taking you nine months to realize that something needs to change here and clearly the answer isn't just to train more because you still haven't you, you've started training more you're now training every single day you can't really train any more frequently other than training multiple times a day and you still haven't reached the body composition goal that you wanted to achieve so why don't we address something else you know and look at your nutrition and actually step back on the on the training front because we actually find that with a lot of clients who start to train more or train harder the opposite happens to what they, they actually want. They actually start putting on body fat because as we spoke earlier about the more, with, you know, with the greater intensity comes greater cravings for carbohydrates, glucose, you know, and things that are highly readily available, you know, so often processed foods that people go for. So yeah, people are burning more calories than they normally would in a day, but they're also consuming more calories than they normally would in a day. So, you know, it actually has the opposite effect to what they wanted. Wow. And I mean, forget about body composition for a second, but I can reference my own example of wanting to be uh, a high-level performer and trying to get there through excessive training. So not only are you, um, if you're fat, you're not going to be dropping those pounds, and if you're trying to go faster, you're going to get slower. So to, to back off from um, that, you know, go, go, go mindset and realize that you're you can reach your goals, uh, I guess, in a seemingly roundabout way or in a more graceful way than forcing things to happen that aren't uh, naturally meant to be and being patient and taking that time to build a base and then, um, you know, harnessing that competitive instinct. I think probably everyone that walks through your door, instead of going next door to buy a hat or a cigar, you know, they're, they're motivated people. They want to get, they want to get busy. They want to accomplish great things and get a sweat going and walk out of that gym an hour later feeling, you know, feeling that buzz, that endorphin high from pushing their body. But um, it's a it's a slippery slope because you can overdo it and um, get dependent not only on cars, but on the on the buzz that comes from a stressful, challenging workout. And over time, it's going to hinder your progress. 
But that, that's the key word, isn't it, is progress. And I think for many, when it comes to training, many fail to look at their progress and actually look back and go, do you know what, actually, I haven't progressed at all for the last six months. I've just been kind of kicking my ass in the gym and working myself into the ground. But actually, now that I think about it, I haven't got any faster, I haven't got any stronger, and I haven't got any leaner. So hold on, what needs to change? And we, we <laughs> hold was, on, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We always just say to people, you know, buy yourself. I mean, I'm old school, you know, I, I just have a notebook. And every time I go to the gym, I write down what energy like, energy levels were like that morning. Obviously, I write down the exercises I'm doing, the reps, the sets, the, the rest periods, the weights that I'm lifting. And I kind of rate each workout. And then over time, of course, I can then start linking that to what my sleep was like, what my nutrition was like. And then you start seeing a pattern. And then, you know, when you write something down and you see it in black and white that, my God, I've, I've actually regressed a little bit here. I haven't even stayed put. I've actually got a little bit weaker. You then start thinking, well, actually, you know what? Maybe it's time I take my foot off the pedal a little bit. I focus a little bit more on my sleep, eating plenty of good food get my stress levels in check and then I'll come back and then for a lot of people we find that that kind of um, intentional regression or a deload as some people might call it has a huge impact and then people will go about the following week or the week after that stronger fitter and also with a kind of newfound hunger for the training again and that's where we try and put people you know go to the local stationery shop get yourself a, a little notebook for 99p or 99 cents as you guys would say um, and, and just start writing stuff down because then it's there, black and white, clear as day. Are you progressing? Great, fantastic. Keep going. Are you not? Well, something needs changing. Right, and we have the Primal Blueprint 90-Day Journal, which is designed um, just for the this kind of evolved approach to journaling where you're not just recording the numbers, but you're putting in, um, you know, your moods and your correlation with your energy level and your motivation level and the difficulty of your workout and trying to align those. And also, you know, doing some serious tracking, like getting your blood tested every so often and um, looking at those um, max effort numbers and expecting those to continue to go up over time rather than um, flatline. And I, you guys know my competitive passion uh, these days is high jumping. So, you know, you go to the track and you put a bar up and I train, you know, really devotedly in the gym and in other ways, sprinting and just putting all these things together to try to be a fit guy to get over that bar. But if I have a bad session where my legs are feeling flat, that means that all that hard work that I've done leading up to, you know, the peak performance effort um, was in many cases excessive. And I've had these revelations and I think everybody can relate in some way where you go out there. Um, you know, I haven't jumped in four months because it's been raining or whatever. And my very first day. Going back, I have um, a maximum effort, and it was coming on the heels of, I guess, a really long taper or doing an appropriate amount of work and allowing myself to uh, absorb and benefit from the years and years of training uh, previously, but without having to have that uh, obsessive, compulsive approach where you miss a workout and you freak out and you, know, you overdo it week after week after week in the name of... I guess, consistency, which is a horrible word for um, someone who's pursuing fitness goals. Mm. Do you regret all the time that you might have wasted <laughs> just, just plowing away at something and then actually having a negative effect on your body? Yeah, that's a good question, huh, Karis? I mean, everybody should ask themselves that. And I think, 
um, in, you know, Andrew McNaughton and I talk about this on the podcast a lot about our um, careers as triathletes, which were back in the 80s and early 90s. And the information and the, you know, the, the experience, um, it, it was a new sport. It was, um, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, track records of people doing um, sophisticated training. And it's clear that we pushed ourselves too hard in training, um, thinking that you need to be uh, a badass in training to be able to correlate that to, you know, a race day. And one, something that Dr. Maffetone said in a recent podcast, which was, it's, a, it's an incredible revelation that, you know, deep down inside our bodies, we have the capacity for extraordinary performance. And the analogy I like to do when I'm giving a talk or something is, is saying, hey, if I came over there right now and put a gun to your head, you would do the most pull-ups you've ever done in your life. I guarantee you, you'd set a new PR. Or if you, you know, speaking of the London Marathon, if I flew over there tomorrow and put a gun to the first client that came through the door's head and said, you're running a marathon right now, they would finish the marathon. You know, they, then they'd go into London General Hospital after to get a bit work up. But, <laughs> you know, um, we can do amazing things if we take care and our, nurture our health our competitive and our competitive spirit, um, you know, a, a positive mindset, like you said, Matt, when they take a couple of weeks off and they come back in the gym or, you know, they back off a little and they have that refreshed uh, appreciation for pushing and challenging themselves. And so I think every day we have to get up and say, what is the purpose of this workout? Is it contributing toward my long-term goals or is it going to put me into, you know, the drag ass category? And it's, it's pretty easy to answer, even if you're not Oh, I'm not a sophisticated athlete. I'm just a casual person who likes to go to the gym. Guess what? You know whether you feel like going that day or not and whether it's the right thing to do or not. And if you don't know, get in there and start your workout and go for five minutes and then check again. Because a lot of times after that first five minutes, you're like, ah, it feels good to get in here. I'm glad I did. And then other times you're like, wow, I really feel crappy and my throat is scratchy. I better get out of here. Well, I think you, there's, um, I liked one of the quotes in the book where you said, uh, I finally learned to take what my body gave me each day and nothing more. And I thought that's that's a that's an awesome quote right there. Did you steal that, Brad, or did you? Is that genuinely yours? <laughs> no, that's me, man. And I had I, I I promise you, I had to learn that the hard way through you know tears and pain and suffering and flying home from these big events, getting my ass kicked. Going, what is your problem? You know, you're you're a smart guy. You have knowledge. You have that passion for competition. I'm willing to do whatever it took, you know, to get to the top and be the best guy and do all that. And what I wasn't willing to do was look at some of those um, personality frailties like over-competitiveness or impatience with the process of getting fit. Like I wanted everything and I wanted it now. And I was willing to go, you know, put my body under duress to to get there. But that's not the... You know, that's not the path to success for anyone. The path to success in fitness and, and competition is nuanced where you have to make, you know, you have to have that discipline and that willpower not to get to the gym, but to pull out of a workout after 12 minutes when it's not right. Or in my cases, I, I think I wrote this in the book, but um, we do this extremely difficult once a week um, endurance bike ride that was uh, over seven hours and it was in the Sierra Nevada mountains climbing for 12,700 feet total climbing. And uh, during that loop, there was a checkpoint an hour and a half at a gas station. And I would get to that gas station 
And if my legs weren't feeling fantastic, it was all uphill the first hour and a half too. So it was a good workout. If I wasn't feeling great and ready to go the next uh, five and a half hours in the mountains, I would just turn around and, and coast back to my house and take a nap. And this happened probably 25 to 33% of the time that I attempted the ride. So here I was, you know, professional athlete. I had all my ducks in a row. I didn't have any distractions or excuses or other stress factors that were pulling me. You know, everything was, you know, preparing me for doing these big workouts. And I still failed, quote unquote, failed, um, you know, a good portion of the time because your body's just not ready to go when, you know, just because it's Tuesday or because um, you haven't done a workout in three days or, or whatever your your ego is telling you that, you know, you wish you were ready to go. You mentioned when we had you on our podcast um, some time ago, uh, we were talking about similar kind of things. And you, you said you got to the point where, you know, if you woke up one day and you had even like a slight sniffle, you just go straight back to bed. And I thought that that's phenomenal because, you know, that takes something. Oh, yeah. And now you're talking about, um, you know, that to me represents the highest level of sophistication for an elite athlete is to have that self-awareness and that uh, comfort and confidence in your abilities and in your, your approach to say, whoops, okay, I'm, you know, I'm taking only what my body can give me each day and nothing more. And today my body has given me a bloody sore throat. <laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> and so that's it. You turn off the faucet and you unplug from your life. In the case of a professional athlete, has that luxury. So, you know, um, I would literally just, just chill until my throat was better. And it might be oh, two days or three days, you know. But when you get a cold, um, you guys tell me how long is your training at subparts? At least two weeks, right? Yeah, easily. Yeah. I mean, sometimes a month or it turns into bronchitis or whatever. And it's like, that's the pattern that especially the devoted athletes fall into is, you know, you, you see them walking around like they're walking zombies because they feel like that's what's uh, part of the athletic experience. And it's, it's just not true. It's about taking care of your body and being good to yourself. Right. Can I ask a question with regards to the really um, like long events? So like cycling seven and a half hours, which you just mentioned, or doing like an Ironman and some of the, the really real long events. Do you think that people need to be um, using more of a ketogenic? I know primal endurance isn't, you're not suggesting everyone be ketogenic, are you, for these uh, for these sorts of endurance events, but more just fat adapted and high fat diets. That's correct, isn't it? You wouldn't, you're not saying that everyone should be in the state of ketosis. Right. This is a very, very um, interesting and uh, nuanced topic that is, is fascinating what's going on at the cutting edge, like the FASTER study, F-A-S-T-E-R, you can Google it, um, by Dr. Volokh in Connecticut, and um, some of the results that came up from athletes who were um, in a sustained high carbo, I mean, uh, low carbohydrate eating pattern, and they brought these guys into the lab, guys like Zach Bitter is the one of the poster boys because he blogs a lot, and um, he was able to um, metabolize double the amount of fats, double the rate than was ever thought humanly possible before they hooked this guy up to the treadmill. Mm -hmm. And he ran for hours and hours without any ingested calories and burning at a decent clip, like a seven minute, 30 second mile, he was burning 98% fat. 
So wow. talking about a fat-burning beast and being able to transition your body over from, and there's a lot of athletes in the book. We talk about Sammy Inkinen, who's got methodical record-keeping and laboratory data and graphs about how he transitioned from a high-carb burner to a predominantly fat burner at the various paces of his uh, cycling. He was a triathlete, world champion triathlete. So these guys at the top are doing some things that are mind-blowing and suggesting that the future of especially ultra endurance sports, but yeah. anything that's, you know, into the high, you know, high hours category, like an eight hour Ironman or a 24 hour ultra, um, it, it appears strongly to be that the cutting edge or the next breakthrough is going to be a ketogenic performing athlete. But back to the average person on the street and wondering about the London Marathon in four months time, um, we feel like, you know, there's a continuum here and you can get into that fat adapted state and dip into and out of a true ketogenic state and not really worry too much about it or, you know, be testing your blood or your urine all the time. It's just about getting away from that carbohydrate dependency in general and consuming more nutritious foods and all the things like you state when you first walk into the, uh, the, the club and, and start getting taken care of uh, with your program. It's like, hey, just start eating some good food and getting rid of that, um, that crap, the sugars and the grains that don't provide nutritional value and get you stuck in a, a carbohydrate burning pattern and a fat storing pattern. So it doesn't have to be something scary or intimidating, like, I don't think I can go that far to the extreme. I, you know, I need to have my, um, my, my bread at my Italian restaurant once in a while. It's, it's just kind of making progress and getting your body better at, for example, um, intermittent fasting, better at doing, let's say, a fasted workout and progressing over time to do a more impressive fasted workout or a, a longer fasted workout and those kind of those kind of things, especially when you got that extra fat on your body and you want to get it off. No, I completely agree. And and we were just talking to somebody um, a couple of weeks ago about the more sort of ultra events. And, and I was thinking when you look at things like in the book, you talk about the effects of chronic cardio and the fact that if you're a sugar burner, you're going to have more free radical damage in the body. So actually to be high fat makes more sense. And then obviously your body will tap into fat stores. And it just got me thinking, if you were going to do these one, two day events, it's, it's not something our bodies necessarily are designed to do. So you kind of have to do something a little bit more unique with your nutrition, which ketosis would be. Um, and somebody just asked me what I thought of whether you, you, should, you could be a ketogenic athlete and stay in ketosis long term and what the side effects or long term effects would be. And I wondered if you guys had looked at that or considered if there's any negative side effects to it, maybe. Well, um, you know, Finney and Volek, the world's foremost experts on this stuff and have been studying this stuff for over 30 years, um, they sound pretty strongly that um, you're, you're mitigating the oxidative damage that occurs from um, strenuous exercise um, by, by a large margin when you're uh, burning ketones and fat rather than glucose. I mean, glucose just burns dirty straight up. And so um, when, you're, when you're at that um, highest level of sophistication where you're really purposely locking yourself into that ketogenic state, which we should mention, um, it's not easy. And you have one, one glass of orange juice and a, and a bit of toast, and all of a sudden you're, you're violently thrown out of ketosis and you're back into glucose burning. So it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to stay in there long term. Yeah. And um, it doesn't seem like anyone's touting any um, warning flags. Maybe the only one that we talk about in Primal Blueprint in general and Mark's blogging and 
um, just the general message is like, look, it's not essential and it's possible that you might be restricting your intake of some really nutritious foods like um, vegetables, fruits, uh, the resistant starches that come from other carb sources. And so um, that's where you get back to that individuality thing and seeing what works for you. But, you know, when you got these guys like um, Paul and Cynthia Grossenstein that came to a lot of the primal cons and they were way deep into this and he did a 13-hour Ironman race um, wow. fueled by a steak the night before and I believe swigging some amino acids and some coconut oil during the race and that's it. You know, so very, very ketogenic and performing, you know, fantastic endurance feed on that. Um, and, you know, mitigating that oxidative damage, which is a big deal for um, a, an endurance racer. I mean, I feel like I raced on the pro circuit from ages 20 to 30, and that was 10 years and actually nine. But I believe that it, it was like a 20-year um, compression to my lifespan, right? I, I aged myself twice as much as I would have if I was you know, simply uh, working as a barrister in London. Yeah. <laughs> and you never think of that. Everyone would, have, everyone would have been watching you thinking, you know, he's just the, the healthiest, fittest guy I know. And he's just going to, you know, lead the longest, healthiest lifestyle <laughs> because of his knowledge of nutrition and exercise. But I really want Matt to do um, go into sort of a ketogenic style of nutrition because it would save us an absolute fortune basically <laughs> <laughs> lots of fasting lots of coconut oil <laughs> the odds yeah now um peter atia has done some really interesting personal experiments and discovered that um, a ketogenic state is more efficient all the way up to anaerobic threshold which is pretty darn that's pretty darn intense so that's any endurance athlete um, is not going to be worried about performing above anaerobic threshold in terms of their competitive goals because, you know, that's an all-out effort for around an hour, depending on the sport. But just a ge generally speaking, anaerobic threshold is really moving. Now, if you're going for that ultra-high glycolytic, you know, basketball player, explosive athlete, um, strength training, CrossFit games type of effect, um, the sentiment is that, um, of course, you're going to need to uh, replace those carbs that you're burning during workouts um, with your diet, but going to the high nutrient value carbs and you can make it work really well. There you go, Matt. <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> but it's fun to, I mean, Mark's big uh, message nowadays, um, you know, is his um, fractal eating patterns, um, compressed eating window, and my personal approach to this after. Um, you know, uh, now it's almost eight years of being strict primal cold turkey since I, I started helping out Mark and working on the Primal Blueprint Project is um, it's very sporadic. It's very different each day. Some days I'll have a big delicious omelet in the morning with bacon and avocado and cheese and vegetables. And then other days I'll have um, chocolate at 11 a.m. as my first meal. And, you know, it's just... Um, it's okay to, uh, you know, give the body a different look every day and get it, you know, improve that fat adaptation, but don't, um, you know, don't have to go to extremes and get into that, uh, like you mentioned at the outset of the show, uh, people that aren't eating enough carbs and dragging themselves through workouts and not recovering right. And I'd say that, you know, I felt that uh, now and then over, over time that, geez, you know, uh, 36 hours after an intense workout, I'm kind of feeling drag ass. And I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I thought I... Thought I did well and recovered, but maybe I wasn't putting enough carbs back in in the um, in the recovery phase. Have enough many um, female athletes worked with you guys 
because um, I know you've, you've got a chapter in the book where you just mentioned um, female hormone health and um, important considerations for women. But have any of them sort of, you know, put any of these changes in place and, and trialed it as an approach? Um, yeah, just fielding tons of emails, um, you know, every day. I mean, since the book came out and people that have been doing it before the, the information in the book came out and confirming it or some people that are just starting and, and experiencing good results. Um, but I, I do respect the uh, females and their um, different concerns. Um, Tani Prezak is an expert on this, the Endurance Planet podcast. She just did a show that may publish before this show or after, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, that individuality aspect is so important and making sure yeah. that whatever you're doing feels great, it feels like a sensible thing to do, and you're not feeling, um, you know, insecure and torn and lousy and drag ass because you're trying to adhere to some program that someone recommended for you. Um, it doesn't work that way. So we're all about flexibility and personal experimentation and getting away from that rigidity um, of, you know, this is the diet. This is the training plan. You have to do this, this, and this. And so if you, you know, uh, intelligently read that message in Primal Endurance, for example, there's so much flexibility inside those periodization rules, you know, Yes, we want you to conduct a strict aerobic-based building period for a couple months. Um, and so some of those things are sort of non-negotiable, you would say. But there's so much flexibility about how you plan your season and your year. And whenever you feel like resting, you take a rest. And it might be a week. It might be three weeks. And that allows you to get you know, into that intuitive state as a fitness enthusiast, as an athlete, and get the most out of your body without those um, dead ends and detours that come from forcing things. Yeah, I think that that's the key word there. Like, you know, just being a bit more intuitive. You know, we, we keep trying to say people, you need to learn to trust your instincts, you know, and, and like you say, taking each day as it comes because, you know, some days everything will just go according to plan. Other days, you know, stuff happens and you need to change and adapt things accordingly. You know, um, we've always said to people, you know, with regards to intermittent fasting as well, you know, some days I intermittent fast just because it happens, not because I planned it. I just got up and went to the gym and then felt okay and just got into work. And next thing you know, I didn't actually eat anything until one o'clock, 2 p.m. And that's fine. So I eat them. Whereas other days I'm absolutely ravenous after a workout and have a big meal, you know, and it's kind of just being able to go with the flow a little bit more. That's what we're saying. Just go with the flow. Don't worry that if you you haven't eaten within an hour after training that you're just going to atrophy into nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to shrivel up. Oh, <laughs> I, um, I appreciate that, Matt. Thanks for the confirmation that, um, you know, that, that, that's good to hear. Um, and a question for you guys, like you have a, a fitness facility and the general, you know, business model of training, coaching, uh, operating facility is people are looking for um, structure they're looking to get pushed by a screaming trainer. That's the mentality, the mindset. And how does your approach, how does it fly when people uh, might be taken off guard when you're telling them to be intuitive or, hey, maybe you should go home. You don't look right. You know, that kind of thing. Well, we've actually um, taken the business online now. So we don't do um, classes every day. Um, when we did, we did try and structure them so that we had um, a strength class, a core class, which was a little bit more just different in its style and what it was teaching a little bit easier, maybe. Um, and we did actually take people to one side and start having a word with them and saying, this is your sixth or seventh class in a row. You need a day off. And we did we did get that message across. But now we've moved online. Um, we actually 
um, write the training programs and Matt's doing his sort of kettlebell workouts in there and body weight. Um, but I'm actually complementing it with, I've really got into just yoga and um, movement. Um, it's, some people call it animal flow or primal moves. It's got lots of different names, but it's basically just mobility, but a bit more fun. So put on some good music and, um, you know, do various different things. It's like a combination of dynamic yoga and other stuff. Um, but we also give people a movement schedule. So we give them a calendar for the month and we say like, today just it's just about walking you know like a you know try and aim for sort of five thousand steps today and um, tomorrow just do some body weight squats while the kettle is boiling and and just try and show people that there are so many different ways that the body needs to be nourished by um by movement really that when we sort of say it's, it doesn't have to be exercise it just it's movement is just as healthy and effective for for keeping joints conditioned and and insulin health in check energy levels up as well yeah, like, yeah. Do, doing nothing and not moving makes makes you tired you know? yeah yeah and I think people are shocked when we say, I particularly talk about some weeks how I just mainly walk the dog, um, go and do a few yoga classes and do some squats while the kettle is boiling and that's it. And people are quite shocked by that because they think that me, Matt and I are at the gym twice a day because that's, you know, fit of London, fit of food, that's what we do. But it's it's not the case, is it? <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, I don't need much of an excuse not to go to the gym. <laughs> no, he is innately lazy. I, I'm definitely <laughs> I'm naturally lazy, you know, definitely. But um, you know, I do. I do. Very enjoy. effective when you get there, though. That's yeah, when fine. I get there, it's, it's game time. Um, but sometimes before that, you know, I have to give myself a little bit of a nudge. But it's also quite funny when people say to me, "Oh, how many times a week do you train?" And I'll be like, "You know, three, four times a week max." And they're like, "Is that it?" And I'm like, well, "What do you mean, is that it?" And it's that people just assume that to look a certain way, you know have to be training every single day five or five six times a week so i'm definitely trying to say uh, change people's perceptions of of training frequency and intensity for sure wow that's an amazing comment about this um naturally lazy and i think um it deserves a little bit more reflection uh usain bolt was uh, hitting that theme in his autobiography about his sprinting and how he's lazy and he cuts out early on workouts and um you know, Dave Epstein, the author of The Sports Gene, was on the Primal Blueprint podcast a long time ago. Search for that show it was fantastic. But he was making the comment that, uh, okay, wait a second here. This is the fastest human that has ever lived on the planet Earth. Um, and so maybe all the other sprinters <laughs> who are working their butts off and doing these, you know, consistent workout patterns might want to pause for a second and say, okay, yeah, the guy's genetically gifted and he's six foot five and he is all that. But um, maybe he's onto something and maybe Matt, you're onto something by having that naturally lazy disposition rather than naturally over competitive disposition where you're constantly battling with the, the demands of the ego or the demands of the obsessive compulsive approach to try to figure out the right way to go. So may maybe lazy is an excellent default position to be in if you want to progress with your fitness goals. We need some T-shirts that say "Lazy is my default," well, and then we'll all wear I, them in the gym. <laughs> speaking of T-shirts, I've actually I've got a pretty cool T-shirt that um, a friend of ours got me um, from, from the states. Actually, it's but it's a Nike one or Nike, should I say? And it says on it "Lazy but talented." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, oh my gosh, that's funny! That, right? You can say Nike. Iggy Azalea says Nike on her rapping. Oh really? But she's these are Saint La these are Saint Laurent sneakers. I ain't wearing Nikes. 
I've been there, done it all, seen it all twice. Now I'm going to get the paper early morning, late night, pull up in the S-class, leave in the wraith, murder mommy be designed to know that murder be the case. Tell them hating bitches all to simmer down. I'm going to get the paper just as soon as word get around. Yeah. This is insane. You're a fan. You, you are an absolute legend. We know, everyone knows Iggy in London, so he might as well throw in a little. I suppose Keep that, the... that whole sentence just would not have worked if she had said Nike. No, no, no. They they work through those. Yeah, the rappers work through those. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So let's. uh, I know we're coming up on the time, but I want to know what's in um, Fitter Food Second Helping. Let's give it. Give me a little uh, rundown of some of the good stuff to expect. More recipes, right? Yeah, as well, yeah. we we've gone we have gone to town yeah, on the recipes. There's we, like over 150 now. About 150 recipes, yeah. um, full of the good stuff as always. Minimal ingredients, really quick, really tasty, and obviously highly nutritious. You know, so the theme is the same as the first book of where it's just food that anyone can cook. You don't need to be a chef. You know, as long as you know the difference between cinnamon and uh, cayenne chili pepper, then <laughs> you, you're all right. You know. We've also added um, soups and smoothies, chapter, how to pimp a salad. We've done another level to that. So just trying to get people excited about salads. People just aren't creative enough, we think, with salads. They can taste awesome with the right toppings. Yeah. Uh, Smoothies, we keep thinking everyone keeps just chucking loads of fruit in a blender and thinking that's that constitutes a decent, nutritious meal. So we sort of did a little guide saying, can we get some protein, fats and antioxidants in there as well and less sugar please and uh front section we did things like nutrition myths um there's still so much confusion even though governments are changing their stance on saturated fats there are still there's still fear um in the uk i don't think it's same in the states i think you guys have been a bit more ahead with that but there's still people are still using vegetable oils and low-fat spreads and avoiding butter so uh, we just reiterated some of the the myths around um around health and also like you guys talk about in the book, just to tell people that weight loss and fat loss is not just about calories and exercise. There's a bigger picture of hormones that you need to support and consider and optimize. Um, And then we just give some tips on trying to get your macros, like your protein, fats and carbs right for your activity level, for your body composition. And then we've got just some nice lifestyle stuff like stress and getting daylight exposure and that's it. Oh, and eating properly, like chewing your food. Support. Oh, we've got gut health in there as well this time. Oh, yeah. God, there's health. loads. Wow. <laughs> yeah, where do we start? Where do we start? <laughs> yeah. Off the top <laughs> of your head, I'm impressed. <laughs> nice rundown, Karis. Good job. You're, you own that material, man. That's awesome. <laughs> so, um, you guys, uh, I opened the show. So, do you want to close it in, in good style? Uh, uh, and, and first, tell us too um, where we can keep in touch with you guys if you got the Twitter thing going or. How we find out your info? Or the, I guess if you're online, we can join up in America and, and get some fitter London going. Oh yeah, that, that, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. That'd be amazing. But yeah, I mean, we uh, you know, of course, our website is fitterfood.com. Um, Facebook is just fitter food. Um, we're also starting to up our Instagram game finally, and we're of course just fitter underscore food on there. Um, Twitter, I still have no clue what I'm doing on there. I just write random stuff <laughs> that no one likes or shares or retweets, but I'll get it one day, I'm sure. And our membership site is uh, Fitter365, which is where we're doing all of our little workout videos and lectures on on nutrition and uh, meal plans and things as well. So that's us. But Brad, what about you? Where can we all find out about you and buy the book? Uh, well... Um, you can buy the book on Amazon uh, throughout the world, I think, and 
Um, we're now getting more active on social media. We have a Primal Blueprint publishing uh, Facebook page, Instagram page, Twitter. Um, so, of course, MarksDailyApple.com and PrimalBlueprint.com for all the products. And the books are available there, too. So, um, yeah, I'd love to, love to interact with people. And now, like I said, we're getting um, tons of questions from endurance athletes trying to figure out the nuances. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough adjustment in mindset and making sure the logistics are right. So, um, for sure, go ahead and uh, email questions in info at primalblueprintpublishing.com and I'll answer those on a special Q&A show for endurance athletes. Amazing. And I just want to put it out there, Brad, as well. Um, thank you very much for sending us the box of goodies, the, uh, the, the mayonnaise, the Primal Kitchen mayonnaise, the Primal Kitchen bar and the, the kind of salad dressings. My God, that mayonnaise you guys have nailed and it. the bars we had a, we had a full-on fight over the last bar yeah which you won <laughs> i won <laughs> <laughs> it's a, honestly the, the mayonnaise is phenomenal and the bars are absolutely delicious epic. are they going to come to the uk then um they better huh yeah otherwise someone will smuggle them in and yeah so they're <laughs> hard at work getting that thing out but the bar is very new and um it's uh they they sold out of the first production run so quickly that um, you couldn't fulfill a lot of orders. So yeah, now it's, um, now it's in the groove and it's nice to see a nutritious bar out there that's not too high in carbs. Cause even if you look at in the stores, at least in America, you know, the high protein bars are uniformly high in sugar as well. So it seems like there's not a lot of good choices in that category, but it'd be nice if there were, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. They are delicious, aren't they? We love yeah. them. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for spending the time, guys. I know it's uh, many hours time zone. It's the end of your day, so go enjoy a nice evening. Pick a recipe out of uh, Fitter Food Second Helping and crank it up, and then and then tweet it out, Matt, to all your all your peeps about about how good it was. Well, that, that's the plan. That's the plan. Uh, you know, but if you have got any Twitter tips, Brad, let me know because uh, <laughs> uh, is the one that I've, I'm yet to kind of get my head around. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to. Um, uh, become a viral YouTube sensation. That's my goal, secret goal in life. So I'm I'm working on it too. You just need to do hip hop and rap covers. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I'll I'll get going on that. If you give me encouragement, be careful, be careful encouraging the host. But anyway, for Karis Marston, Matt Whitmore, and Brad Kearns, thank you for listening to our wonderful joint podcast from USA to England. Have a great day and good luck with your efforts. Thank you. Da 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 da. Are you someone who appreciates a fast, casual dining experience? Is it important that the taste of your food and the freshness of the ingredients take center stage? Well, bringing that experience to a table near you is the mission of the hottest new franchise concept in North America, Primal Kitchen Restaurants. If you want to learn more about this one-of-a-kind franchising opportunity, go to PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com. That's PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com.